Well, good morning, Gateway family. It's good to see you this morning. Once you find Ephesians chapter 6 in your copy of God's Word or on your Bible out there on your phone, we are beginning the next and the final chapter of the book of Ephesians this morning. And though we see a big number 6, which looks like a whole new idea, to realize there was no break in Paul's thought. When he wrote this, there were no chapters, there were no verses. Those have been added later to serve us and to help us. And so what Paul is saying is we begin chapter 6. It's part of the flow of what he's already been teaching us. He's shown us what our identity is in Christ, who we are as followers of Christ, and how we live it out in our attitudes, in our words, in our actions. He's applied that specifically, as he saw over the last few weeks before Easter, to the home. How does our identity in Christ change how we live in our home life? How do we walk worthy in our homes of our calling that we have in Christ? And we saw over the few weeks before Easter the husband-wife relationship and what that looks like as followers of Christ. Well, now Paul just flows straight into the parent-child relationship. And so we'll see that this morning. And we're going to focus in on the responsibility of parents. Now, before we read this, I want to remind you, like I did when we worked through the husband and wife text in the, few weeks, the last few weeks, this is for everyone. If you're a parent, obviously this is for you. And there's, I hope, much truth to help you in this. But if you're a grandparent and your kids are already out of the house, there's much truth for you as well as you pray for your grandkids and you pray for your kids as they shepherd their children. If you hope to be a parent one day, students, high school students, college students, and you have a longing to have a family one day, I want you to tune in as well to this because there's much to be said for developing a worldview now that will shape how you will approach things in the future. Children, if for our kids in the room who are not out in kids' worship, I want you to tune in today as well. Because there's commands here for you. Even as you listen to the responsibility your parents have, there's truth for you in that as well of what God requires of you. And for everyone, regardless of your marital status, regardless of whether or not you have kids, we're in the body of Christ together. Think about all we saw in the book of Ephesians about the unity of the body of Christ and functioning together as a body. And what happens to one part affects the whole body. And so I want you to listen in as well, even if you don't have kids. Because you have a responsibility as well as the body of Christ to pray for and encourage and come alongside those who have the responsibility of child rearing. So this is for all of us in the body of Christ. So we come to Ephesians chapter 6 this morning in the first four verses. And as we read them this morning, I want you to look for what is the primary responsibility of parents and why. What is the primary responsibility of parents and why. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 6. And I ask you to stand please in honor of the reading of the word of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word. God, that you have not hidden yourself from us. God, you have shown us these glorious truths of who you are, who we are in you. And you've not left us wondering and wandering to try to figure out how in the world we're to navigate the course of this life. God, you've made it so clear to us. Thank you for your loving kindness to us and your love for us. You give us direction for very practical parts of our lives and even our homes. God, I pray today that your word would come alive to us. That God, it would be something that you would use to grow us in our faith, to help every single one of us, regardless of where we are in life and our situation, God, that you would use your word today as only you can to bring truth and to help equip us for what you've called us to do. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What I want you to do this morning for this text is simply this. Parents have a God-given responsibility 
to lovingly nurture their children's spiritual health. So what is a parent's primary calling? It's to fulfill a God-given responsibility. That God has entrusted to parents an incredibly high calling. He's entrusting to their care a life or lives made in the image of God for us to nurture. Not in any way we want, but to nurture lovingly. And not for any goal that we set, but for his goal of their spiritual health. Parents have a God-given responsibility to lovingly nurture their children's spiritual health. Now, I want to kind of take that apart and look at that and see this in the text this morning. First of all, I want you to see this is a responsibility that's given to parents. Look at chapter 6, verse number 4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children's anger. Notice it starts with the word fathers. Well, what about the mothers? Why is he only talking to fathers here? Why is he addressing this just to the fathers? Well, mothers are included in the scope of this. Go back to, just glance back to the first two verses. Children, obey your parents. That includes fathers and mothers. Verse 2, honor your father and your mother. So obviously in view here is this inclusion of fathers and mothers, which will be consistent throughout the whole Bible. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20, we see that there's a responsibility given to both fathers and mothers. In Proverbs 6, 20, it says, My son... Keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. So clearly in God's design for the family, both a father and a mother both have teaching responsibilities. Both have responsibilities given by God for raising the children. But go back to chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Or why is he starting with just fathers here, though mothers and fathers are in view? Well, think back the last few weeks before Easter. We looked at the responsibility that God gave to husbands and to fathers. He called men to humble leadership in the home, to reflect Christ in the way that they served their family. And so what he's doing here is he's reminding the husbands in particular that you have to have a heart to serve your wife. And as you serve your wife, you have to do so by serving your kids. Friends, in our culture too often, the men have abandoned the raising of children to the women. And he's saying, dads, you and your wife are in this together. You are the spiritual head of the home. You're to lead with servant leadership, your wife, and together you work together for the good of your children. That means, dads, we have to get involved in the parenting. And we'll talk more about what that looks like in just a moment. But as husbands and wives work together, they pursue a God-given responsibility. But they pursue a responsibility to do what? If you think about how Paul has described responsibilities before, particularly in chapters 4 and 5, he used a paradigm for us. He would tell us to put off something and to put on something. He would show us a behavior that, that we're supposed to rid because we're followers of Christ, something that we're to replace it with. And so he's going to do the exact same thing here in chapter 6. He's going to call us to put off a particular sinful pattern in our life as parents. He's going to call us to put on particular godly behavior. So what is our responsibility? Well, let's look at the negative, the put off. Our responsibility is to put off provoking our children. We're to put off provoking our children. Look back at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, friends, this is a stunning command that's easy for us to gloss over. This command is found nowhere in the Old Testament. This is the first time in the Scriptures you see this command to not provoke your children. This command would be incredibly stunning for the readers at the time because in the culture at the time, the more common command was, children, don't provoke your parents. And I think a lot of times we even operate with that mindset as well, that the expectation is children don't provoke your parents. But he flips it on us and makes it incredibly countercultural then and now. And he says, fathers, and including moms here as well, parents, do not provoke your children to anger. What does it mean to provoke to anger? Well, this is fascinating, friends, because the word that we translate here, provoke, or some of your translations may say exasperate, is the Greek equivalent of a word in the Old Testament that was used to describe God's anger over Israel's sin. 
So when you look in the Old Testament, when God would get angry over Israel's sin or their idolatry, that word, if you translate that word into Greek, is this very word that we have here to provoke or to exasperate. So don't miss this. This is not a word for sinful anger. When we talked back in chapter 4 about anger, we talked about sinful anger and righteous anger. This is not sinful anger in the heart of a child. This is that rare type of righteous anger because it's the anger modeled after God's own righteous anger when people sin. So what does that mean for us in the life of a child? What is provoked anger? I want to give you a definition of provoked anger. And it's this. Provoked anger is a righteous resentment. It is a righteous resentment of actions, attitudes, or words that are inconsistent with the faith someone professes. A provoked anger is a righteous resentment of actions, attitudes, or words that are inconsistent with the faith a person professes. And here, this would mean in a child, it's a child's righteous resentment of the actions, attitudes, or words of their parents that are inconsistent with the faith that their parents profess to have in Christ. That means a provoked anger in a child is not sinful anger. It is a righteous anger. It's the same word that's used to describe God's holy anger when his people sinned against him. It's because the child sees the incongruity between what the parent says they believe, I'm a Christian, and how the parent is treating that child. Now that raises a huge question for us. What inconsistencies in the life of a parent provoke their child to a righteous anger? Well, there could be a lot that we could say, but let's go back in Ephesians to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at what a parent is called to be. If a parent says, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, how are they saying that they're agreeing to live according to God's standards? So Ephesians chapter 4, go back to verse 1 and 2. Ephesians 4, 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now just pause there. Remember, the idea of walking worthy was a Greek word, axiom, meaning to keep in balance. It's a command to seek God's grace. God says, here's who I see you as in Christ. Now find my grace to live it out. So specifically now, what provokes a child to anger when they see their parents not seeking to walk worthy, not live out what they say they believe, who they say they are in Christ. So go to verse 2. What does that practically look like? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So what provokes a child to anger when they see pride in the heart of their parents, particularly pride that's expressed to them as a child, when they see harshness coming from their parents? Ephesians 4.2, that we're to treat one another with humility and gentleness. And friends, the parent-child relationship is not exempt from these commands. Humility, gentleness, and patience. When a child sees in their parents who says, I'm a follower of Christ, but the parent is harsh to the child, is not gentle to the child, is impatient with the child, that provokes the child. Go further down the chapter to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. So what provokes a child? A parent who lies. Or a parent who does not keep their promises. When a parent says to a child, yes, I will do that for you, and they don't do it. Yes, I will take you there, and they don't do it. It provokes a child when a parent does not live out, verse 25, when they do not speak the truth. The very next verse, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What provokes a child is sinful anger. When the parent is not angry because God's name has been defamed, but when the parent is angry because the child has inconvenienced the parent. Because the child has messed up the parent's schedule, the parent's reputation, the parent's image, or whatever it is. When it's a selfish anger, that type of anger we saw back in chapter 4 here is sinful anger. Sinful anger will then provoke a child. How about verse 28? Go down to it. 
May the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. There's lots of application to that, but one in particular that will provoke a child is if a parent demands a child to work when that parent himself or herself is unwilling to work in the same way. How about the very next verse? This is one where I think a lot of us as parents struggle. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only, only such as good for building up as fits the occasion. It may give grace to those who hear. So parents, if we say we're followers of Christ, part of our walking worthy in all relationships, including parent-child relationships, everything that comes out of our mouth should be things that give grace, that build up others, and that includes our kids. Corrupting talk is a broad term. What are things that provoke children when we do not have talk that builds up? That would include harsh words. That would include insults, sarcasm, nagging, demeaning comments, hurtful teasing, anything that's provocative falls, anything that will tear down our children instead of give them grace is what we see here. And so when we choose to not have speech that gives grace, but we have speech instead that tears down, it provokes our children to righteous anger. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Think back to a few months ago when we looked at chapter 4 there. The word clamor is not a word you probably use in your conversations this week, would be my guess. But the word clamor means yelling, raising your voice, screaming. And so he says in all relationships, if you're a follower of Christ, there should be no clamor, no yelling. Parents, if we are yelling at our children, if we are raising our voice in anger at our children, that provokes them to a righteous anger. One more, Ephesians 5, verse 21. We saw this when we were looking at what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit back a few weeks before Easter, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Friends, it provokes children to righteous anger when the parent says, I'm the parent, you must obey me, but that same parent is unwilling to submit to authority. Whether it's government authorities, whether it's bosses at work, whatever else, when the parent themselves refuses to submit to authority and submit to others, yet they demand submission and obedience from the child, that provokes the child. There's one more I want to mention that provokes children to anger though it's not mentioned directly in Ephesians, so I think the principle's all there, and that's neglect. Neglect of the child on the part of the parent. And when we hear the word neglect, our mind goes to those worst-case news stories that are horrific to see. And yes, that is neglect. But can I remind us, parents, in the busy world we live in, that neglect can also mean neglect of our attention and neglect of our time. We can be present and still neglecting our kids. We can be present with our children, but neglecting them because we're focused on our work, because we're checking our email, because we're playing on social media, because we're engaged with the TV and not our children. Friends, we can have hours in the same room with our children and still neglect them because we're not giving them our attention and our time. All those things provoke a children to a righteous type of anger. And we are commanded here back in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children's anger. That means we're to put off anything in our life It'll be inconsistent between what we say we believe in Christ and who we are in Christ and how we're to live it out. Anything that would cause our children to see that inconsistency and have anger about it. But as we've seen throughout Ephesians, it's not enough to just put off sin. Holiness is not, great, I'm not getting angry at my kids, or great, I'm not yelling at my kids. That's not it. Holiness takes us a step further. We put off the sin, but we replace it with the Christ-like virtue. And what do we put on instead? Well, parents have a God-given responsibility to lovingly nurture our kids. We put off provoking our children, and we put on loving nurture. What God's calling us to is not just to put off one thing, but to put on, to intentionally pursue in our lives loving nurture of our children. Look back at verse 4. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but... Now, here's the put on. Here's what we're to do instead. But bring them up. We're told to bring them up. This is the exact same word. Think back to chapter 5, verse 29 that we looked at. To no one hates his own body, but nourishes it. And we're told then that a husband is to nourish his wife. This word to bring up is the exact same word in Ephesians 5, 29, to nourish. Or we might say today to nurture. People have a responsibility to nurture their own selves, to take care of their body physically. Husbands have a responsibility to nurture their wives. And now we're told parents, you have that same responsibility to nurture your kids. What does it mean to nurture your kids? Well, it's your attitude and your actions both. Nurturing is both a heart attitude and particular expressions of actions. It's a heart attitude of love and tenderness. One of the great early church reformers said the word nourish means to let them be kindly cherished. This is to nourish your kids, to nurture your kids, means you have a heart that kindly cherishes them. Now, friends, if we're honest, that's not always easy because our kids are not little saints walking around. They're sinners in need of a Savior. Yet God calls us to have an attitude towards them of not harshness, of not frustration, of not getting ticked off or they're bothering us, but to have a heart that lovingly, kindly cherishes them. That's why it's so important. If you look at when Paul is bringing this to us in this letter, he does this after Ephesians 5.18. This comes only after he's told us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because what he's calling us to do to always nourishingly, cherishingly, kindly cherishing your kids, that's only possible if we're filled with the Holy Spirit. For a husband who died himself to serve his wife with humble Christ-like leadership only comes when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. For a wife to submit joyfully to her husband's Christ-like leadership only comes when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this is not just saying that we're going to have white-knuckle determination, try harder to be kind and cherish our kids. This comes as an overflow of us being filled with the Holy Spirit as God changes our perspective where we look upon our kids even when they're in their sin and rebellion and we kindly cherish them. So to nurture is an attitude of love and tenderness to kindly cherish them. But if we're going to nurture our kids, that leads to actions as well. And there's two particular actions mentioned here that describe what it looks like to nurture children. He said back in verse 4, but bring them up, and he gives us two things, in the discipline and in the instruction. So if we're going to nurture, we have discipline and we have instruction. Now these words aren't super clear for us in English because in the Greek, this word that we translate discipline, or some of your translations may say training, we think of discipline, we normally think of correction. That's not what's in view here. This word discipline is a positive word. This is a proactive word. You think of like a disciplined athlete or a disciplined student. This is the proactive step that a parent's teaching. This is a step parent takes to intentionally model, to train, to teach, to encourage. That's what's in view in this particular command. But the second word that you see there is to, to train them up in the instruction. The Greek word there is the word admonition. This is more what we think of with the word discipline. This word literally means to warn. This is the role of a parent when they see sin in their children's life, to discipline them, to respond when they see sin, to correct them. So it's intentional training and it's intentional correction. It's positive modeling and it's responsive correction as needed. So to nurture then, pulling all that together, means that we kindly cherish our children. And out of that, we disciple them. We are proactive to teach them and invest in them and point them to Christ. And then as parents, out of a heart that kindly cherishes them, we then respond with gentle biblical correction when they err to admonish them, to instruct them, to warn them of the dangers. But our discipline and our discipleship all comes out of a heart that kindly cherishes them. But what are we nurturing them to? We're to train them up in something. We're to admonish them when they go away from it. What are we trying to get them to do? 
We're trying to nurture their spiritual health. Our primary responsibility for our children is not their education, is not that they become socially normal in society, is not their sports. Our primary job is their spiritual health, their spiritual good. Look at verse 4 again. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What does it mean to train them up in the discipline of the Lord? That means we're teaching them about the Lord. That means we're intentionally, proactively discipling our children so they come to know the character of God, so they come to understand His Word and His promises, when they learn why He does what He does, when they come to see the beauty of God as He's portrayed in Scripture. We're teaching them about the Lord. Friends, I want to remind us that knowing God is not just about knowing God, it's about experientially experiencing Him. Back to John chapter 15, verse 9. This was a long time ago. It was, what, a year and a half ago that we were in the Gospel of John. I just want to remind us what a relationship with God looks like. In John 15, it says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Our goal as parents is nurturing our children not just to know about God, but to know God, to experience daily His love, and then for them in response to abide in His love, to stay and his love. That means we model a relationship with God before our kids. We encourage our kids towards a personal, intimate relationship with God. We pray for them to have a deep, abiding relationship with God. We challenge them to have a relationship with God. But in the very next verse, in verse 10 of John chapter 15, we see more of what this looks like for us. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Friends, our goal for them for children is to know God, and we, that means that they need to be submitting to Him as Lord. They need to be seeking to obey His commandments. Our goal for them, perhaps you could say, is Christ-likeness. So the way a parent nurtures their kids, that they have a heart attitude that kindly cherishes them because they're a person made in the image of God who's been entrusted to this parent to be raised, and then they seek to disciple that child to understand what it looks like to pursue God's will, what it is to know the commandments of God, what it means to experience the love of God. They disciple, they train towards that end, and then when the child errs from that, they discipline with gentle biblical correction for that. Now, with that said, friends, we need to be really careful here. Because our goal as parents is the spiritual health of our children. That means we need to be parenting for God's commands, not for our preferences. It's super easy to parent for our preferences, but the standard that we're holding up for them is John 15, 10, the Father's commands. Are we teaching the Father's commands, or are we holding up as supreme our own preferences? And friends, when we discipline, are we disciplining for willful sin, a willful breaking of God's commandments, or are we disciplining because of childlikeness or silly mistakes or the fact they're a young child or because our life has been inconvenienced or because they didn't live up to our preferences. We must be careful to guard ourselves as parents that we discipline for willful disobedience to the Father's commands and not for more. Our goal is for them to know God, to have Christ-likeness for their eternal good. And friends, there's a very real danger in parenting for us to lose sight of this goal that God's given to us and get distracted with good things to parent for a good education, to parent for our kids to do well in sports, to parent for our kids to be functioning members of society. Those are not bad things. Those are good. And we need to parent them for the whole person. But it's easy sometimes to get focused on all those temporal things and miss what's most important. If you look back at Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus has a very sobering warning for all of us, but this applies to parents as well. It says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Parents, we will give an account to God one day for how we nurtured our children's spiritual health. 
That means we'll give it a stronger account for how we nurtured their spiritual than we did for how we nurtured their education or their sports or their popularity. And not just bad to nurture them holistically, but our primary accountability before God is helping them to know God and to pursue Christ's likeness. We have a God-given responsibility to lovingly nurture our children's spiritual health. That leads to the question, why is it so important for us to do this? Why is it so important? It's so important, friends, because there's so much at stake. Look back at chapter 6, verse 1. Look at what God expects of children. If you have children in your household, this is what God requires of them, and they will be held accountable for before a holy God. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Our children will give an account before a holy God, before a holy judge one day, of whether or not they have obeyed us because it is right, it is good, it is the way God designed things to be. But there's even more at stake than just that. Look at verses 2 and 3. It's not just eternally what's at stake. There's things at stake now. Look at verse 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That, so that, here's the reason why he says to obey and honor, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. He's quoting the fifth commandment from Exodus 20. He's quoting when it's repeated in Deuteronomy 5 and a phrase is added to it. What is at stake for our children? Blessing and safekeeping. Whether or not our children are nurtured and pointing in the right direction, what's at stake for their soul is their blessing and their safekeeping here. In verse 3, the blessing is it may go well with you. That's the Lord's favor being upon us. The Lord's pouring out his blessings upon them. And then the safekeeping as well, that you may live long in the land. Why is it so important that our primary focus be nurturing our children's spiritual health? Because their blessing and their safekeeping is on the line. So that means, parents, we have to have honest pausing and reflecting to go, do my parenting priorities, do the things I say, do what I emphasize. Does it reflect the seriousness of the blessing of my child and that the, the safety of my child is on the line in what I'm doing? Now, with this difference, we need to understand that what Paul's doing here is giving us a proverb. If you think throughout the book of Proverbs, and if you studied the, how to study the Bible with me back about like two years ago, we talked about how you understand different genres of Scripture, because each genre of Scripture has different principles to help us understand it. Proverbs, when you go to the book of Proverbs, they're general principles for life. That means there are exceptions. These are not universally true. So, for example, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 10, would repeat something very similar to what we see today. He says, Hear my son and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. That's a proverb. Generally speaking, a child who will obey his parents will have a much healthier, longer life than a child who's living in defiance of it. But friends, we all know exception to that. In God's world, this is generally how things operate, but it's not universally true. Or Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So generally in God's created order, what happens is that when a child is trained in the way he should go, that he will stay on that path. But friends, we all know exceptions of parents who very faithfully nurtured their children in the ways the Lord have kindly cherished their children, who have taught them and discipled them very well, who have disciplined them when they went astray, and that child has chosen to wander off. That child will give an account before the Lord for their rebellion against their parents and for their rebellion against God. The parents are accountable for having tried faithfully to do that. And so realize this is not a general promise that we can claim for everyone else. This is a general principle. This is a proverb for us. But knowing that this is generally how things operate in God's created order is a proverb that reminds us that much is at stake. Why do we pursue nurturing our kids? Why do we pursue discipling them and disciplining them? Because so much is at stake in their lives for the blessing they can experience and for the safekeeping they have when they are pursuing structure the way God has ordained it to be. Therefore, parents must lovingly seek to nurture 
their children's spiritual health. So go back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. How do we do that? The why is there's a lot at stake. Now is the how question. How do we practically nurture our children? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Why? Because it's going to look different for your family than for mine. I want you to hear something. You've heard me quote Brian Chappell before. He's one of my favorite authors when it comes to the book of Ephesians and studying it. He's a pastor, and here's what Brian Chappell says. Godly parenting requires more than the application of a specific technique of discipline or setting a curfew in accord with the newest standards of the latest parenting seminar. No single set of techniques or rules will make us good parents. No single set of techniques or rules will make us good parents. Our sins and our children are far more perplexing than any book, seminar, or sermon can cover. Do you catch that? Our sins, because what you struggle with, I struggle with, may be different. My children's personality and your children's personality are going to be different. What your child struggles with and what my child struggles with may be different. Our sins and our children are far more perplexing than any book, seminar, or sermon can cover. The complexities of each child's nature and situations will not allow template responses. The complexity of each child's nature and situations will not allow template responses. Friends, there's so much harm that's been done throughout Christianity when someone tries to copy a formula that's worked for someone else. Where they got that formula from a book or from a seminar or a particular methodology or from when they heard their pastor say, when they try to copy a formula, it doesn't take into account that their sins and their kids' sins may be different than that other person. Their kids' personality and the parents' personality may be different. We are all different in our personalities, even what we struggle with, and so we need to take that in consideration. Friends, also... Let me say this, if you're parents, there's much harm done when we try to export what worked for our family to other people's families as well. By God's grace, it worked for you. We rejoice and we are thankful for that, but we need to be careful saying, I figured it out and here's what you should do as well. With that said, there's no formula. I do believe there's six principles, big picture, that we can all apply into our lives. I'm not going to tell you specifically what it's going to look like with you and your kids. So how do we practically, verse 4, bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Just very briefly, six principles. Number one, we ourselves must walk with God. We ourselves must walk with God. If we are going to point our children, and if we're going to help them see what it looks like to know God, we cannot take them somewhere we are not. That means if our goal, God has given us these children and his design so that we can nurture them to know who God is and not just to know about God, but to walk with God and to have Christ's likeness and make a difference for God's name and for God's glory. We can't take them there if we ourselves are not there. We cannot help our children learn scripture if we ourselves do not learn scripture. We cannot help our children memorize scripture if we are unwilling to memorize. We cannot help our children have the discipline of reading the Bible if we ourselves don't read the Bible. We cannot get our children spiritually where they need to be if we ourselves are not pursuing it as well. Number one, walk with the Lord ourselves. Number two, have a healthy relationship with your spouse. Have a healthy relationship with your spouse. Our great aim is the spiritual nurture of our children. We want them to understand who Christ is and what the church is and how Christ and the church relates. So think back to the three weeks before Easter. We spent three weeks before Easter looking at the husband-wife relationship. The main reason God gives marriage on earth is to be a picture of Christ and the church to help us, to help the world understand who God is and how God relates to his people. Many well-meaning parents have neglected their own relationship to pour into their children. And that's actually the very worst thing a child needs because the very picture that God has given to your child is a husband-wife relationship to help them understand Christ and the church. 
when the husband loves his wife with a Christ-like humble sacrificial service and leadership, and when the wife joyfully submits and respects her husband's Christ-like leadership in the home, it helps a child understand who God is and how the church is to respond to God. To neglect the husband-wife relationship for the child ends up hurting the child in the wrong long run because it deprives the child of the very picture of God in the church that God put right there before that child. So we need to cultivate godly relationships with our spouse. So number one, walk with God. Number two, have a healthy relationship with your spouse. Number three, pray much, 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 much for your children. Pray much for your children. If you think back to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, we are helpless apart from God. The imagery in Ephesians, we are dead in our trespasses in sin. And Paul uses a very direct imagery there to help us understand our spiritual state. Friends, we are not, our children are not born good and get corrupted by an environment. Our children are born sinners with a sin nature the moment they come out of the womb. We are born in our sins, and so we sin because we already are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We are born guilty. We are born with a propensity to sin. That's why I would assume in this room, those of you who are parents or have been parents, none of you ever woke up one morning and thought, man, my kid is just perfect and holy. How do I help them fit in in the world better? None of us are having to do that because our kids are born sinful. They're born with sin nature. So our job as parents is to be correcting that, discipling and disciplining. Only God can bring life to a dead heart. Only God can change the affections of one who loves their sin. And so the most important thing we can do besides seeking God ourselves and seeking to have a healthy relationship with our spouse is to pray much, much, much for our children. So walk with God, have a healthy relationship with your spouse. Number three, pray much for your children. Number four, actively engage your children. There is no way to effectively disciple and discipline a child if you're not in a relationship with them that involves a lot of time. There's a lot of talk about quality time these days, but friends, you can't effectively disciple and discipline not without just quality time, but without quantity time as well. To do this responsibly that God has given to you to nurture their spiritual health takes quantity time as well. To actively engage your children. Now, how do you do that? Because for me, when I hear someone say, engage your kids... That's a real nebulous concept. I can't hang anything on that to try to get my mind around how to do that. There's a really helpful book. Our college guys are actually reading it right now called The Masculine Mandate. It's a book written to men that was really influential in my life. And the, the guy who wrote it, Richard Phillips, said there's four ways you engage your children. This, for me, was so helpful because this is something that I can look at a given week and go, have I done these four things with my three kids this week? Here's the four things he says that will help you engage your children. Number one, read to them. Like, our children need to hear us read them. Obviously, that includes the scriptures, but that can be other books as well. Do our children have a regular experience of us reading them, hearing our voice, reading the word of God to them, and reading other books to them as well? Number one is you read. Number two is to pray for them. Like we just mentioned earlier about praying, but this is praying where they can hear it. Parents, dads particularly, do your children hear you pleading with God for their salvation? Do your children hear you pleading with God that God would protect them from the lies of the enemy? Do your children hear you pleading before the Father for their physical protection? Do they hear you pleading with God for even their future spouse? Are your children hearing you pray for them? We engage our children when we read to them, we pray to them. Number three, when we teach them how to work. We help them develop life skills. We're engaging our kids when we bring them along with us and teach them how to cut the grass, how to wash the car, how to cook, how to clean, whatever else. Are we helping our children learn how to work? Number four, play with them. And this means playing with what they want to play with, which means it may stretch you in things you didn't know anything about. I have learned over the last two and a half years a lot about tea parties and dolls and playing mommy and daddy that I had no clue about before a little girl came into my life two and a half years ago. 
but it has been beautiful. We need to play with our children with what they want to play with. And every child is going to be so different with what they want. That means as parents, we get on the floor with their level and engage each child with what they want to play with. So we read to them, we pray for them out loud where they hear. We teach them to work and we play with them with whatever they want to play with. That's how we actively engage. And so I'd encourage you moms and dads alike to take a look even today over your last week. And over the last seven days when the children God's entrusted to you, have you read to them? Have they heard you praying for them? Have they learned some skill or been at least practicing a skill working with you? Have they, you've gotten on the floor and played with them with the toys that they delight in? So how do we engage our kids? We have a personal relationship with God ourselves. We have a healthy relationship with our spouse. We pray much and we actively engage. And number five, we involve them in the church. We involve them in the church. The church is beautiful, friends. I love gathering with you guys, and I love watching my three kids gather with you guys as well. Because you have different personalities than I have, and you have different gifts than I have, and you come from different walks of life. And when you bring all that together, our children get to see the beauty of the body of Christ. If you think through all of what we've seen in Ephesians, what God is doing, building the church, where he brings diversity together in unity to proclaim his glory, immerse your children in the midst of that so they can see it for themselves. With that said, friends, the church cannot make up for a lack in the home, but church can sure do a good job of coming alongside and encouraging your child and modeling for a child what they're getting in the home as well. And then lastly, number six, and this may be perhaps the hardest for us, confess to our children when we sin against them. Confess to our children when we sin against them. First John chapter 1, verse 8 is a very clear verse that applies to parents. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Friends, the reality is every single one of us, myself included, struggle with sin. That means not only do we sin against our spouse, but we sin against our kids on a pretty regular basis. If we say we have no sin against our children, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. None of us are perfect parents. I'm not a perfect parent. You're not a perfect parent. We all sin against our kids. Now, remind us, sin happens in two ways. We have sins of commission where we do something wrong outwardly. When we yell at our kids, if we slander our kids, if we have a comment that puts down our child, if we are impatient, if we break a promise we made to our child, no matter how little they are, that is a sin of commission. Remember, there's a second type of sin in the Bible, that's a sin of omission, when we do not do what we're supposed to do. Friends, if we're not reading the scripture to our children, that is a sin of omission. If we're not praying for our children out loud to them, that is a sin of omission. If we're not correcting them, if we're not disciplining our children when they sin, that is a sin of omission. If we're not spending time with them, if we're sitting there with them on the floor while we're playing on our phones and we're ignoring them, that is a sin of omission. And so we have to confess our sins of commission and omission both. That means when we sin against our kids, we need to do what the scripture says. We need to go to the person and confess our sin. That means we have to humble ourselves and go to our child and ask for their forgiveness. Friends, that is very sober when you have to look at a two-year-old in the eye and say, Daddy sinned against you. Will you forgive me? I had to do this this week with my two-year-old. And trust me, it's very humbling when a grown man who's supposed to be a pastor has to look at his two-year-old little girl and say, Daddy sinned against you. In all seriousness, I need you to forgive me. But it's so sweet when that same two-year-old looks at you and goes, Daddy, I'll forgive you. I love you. And there's reconciliation. Friends, we, have, we will sin against our children, and we have to confess our sins to our kids so they have a chance to forgive us so that we can be reconciled. Why don't you hear a familiar text, but I want to apply it to parenting this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. We hear this in terms of worship, but it's applicable to parenting. So if you're offering your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, in verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go. 
first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God is incredibly serious about us dealing with our sins one another. So if we're in a corporate worship gathering and you realize that you've sinned against someone else here at Gateway or someone, another believer somewhere else, and you're not reconciled, God says, don't just keep going through the motions of worship. You can leave worship. You have our permission and blessing to do this. You can leave, get up, and go find that person and say, I sinned against you. I want to be reconciled before you so my worship is acceptable before the Lord. Now let's apply this to parenting. So go back to verse 23 again. I'm going to change a few words here. I think it's consistent with the meaning of the text here. So if you're offering gift to the altar, if you're in corporate worship singing to the Lord, and there you remember that your child has something to you. Your child has been provoked because of you. Now verse 24. Parents, stop your corporate worship. Stop going through the motions. First go, be reconciled to your child, and then return with a clean conscience to sing to the Lord. Friends, not only when we confess our sins to our children does it bring healing in the relationship and keep the enemy from having a heyday in their lives, it models for our child what they're to do when they sin. Because your children will sin just like you sin. My children will sin just like I sin. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And so it shows them what to do. When your child then struggles with sin and they've offended someone else, if you have been faithful to confess your sin to them and seek reconciliation, they now have a model of what they themselves can do themselves in being reconciled. So what do you do? Number one, you personally walk with God. Number two, you have a healthy relationship with your spouse. Number three, pray much, 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 much. Number four, actively engage. Number five, get involved in the church. And number six, confess your sins to them. Friends, there is no formula for us, but I believe if we will seek God's grace to do those things, God will give us much grace to fulfill our responsibility to lovingly nurture our children's spiritual health. So parents, I want to ask you, how are you doing nurturing your children's spiritual health? How are you doing? Are you focused primarily on their spiritual health or are you focused on something else? Parents, how are you doing living out intimacy before the Lord before your kids? How are you doing confessing your sins to your kids? Friends, perhaps the very thing God might use to give a turning point in your child's life is for you to go to your child and say, Daddy or Mommy has blown it. We've sinned. We have failed to discipline you. We failed to whatever, and to confess your sin before your children ask for their forgiveness. But children, I want to speak to you. I know that third grade and below is not in here, but for our older children and teenagers in particular, do you realize what your parents are entrusted with doing? Do you realize what your parents have been called by God to do, and are you making that easy for them or hard for them? Are you seeking to fulfill what God has called you to do? And do you realize what's at stake for you, that blessing and safekeeping is on the line for you? Perhaps you need grace today to go ask your parents for forgiveness where you've fallen short. Perhaps you need grace today to say, I want your protection. I want God's blessing by following you. But then everyone, friends, the parents have an incredibly weighty responsibility. Whether or not you have kids, are you praying for the other families at Gateway? Because the enemy is very hard at work. There's a very real enemy named Satan who's very active trying to wreck families. Because if he can wreck families, he can wreck the testimony of the church before a lost and dying world. Are you interceding for the parents you know, pleading for grace for them to live out their calling and to walk worthy of their calling? Friends, we are the body of Christ and we need one another. Parents, and let me say the church is coming alongside parents, has a God-given responsibility to lovingly nurture their children's spiritual health. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful that you are the perfect God, that you're the perfect Father. Lord, we all have fallen short, every single one of us, Lord, that's why we all need grace and we all need the gospel. I'm so thankful that none of us come to you because we've got it all figured out or because we're good. We come to you broken. We all come to you needy. 
you know, come to you just in desperate need of grace. So Lord, I pray this day, Lord, for particularly for the parents of Gateway, that Lord, they wouldn't be discouraged, they wouldn't be beat down, but God, they would feel a Holy Spirit-given longing to grow in their shepherding of their child. Lord, what an incredible response we've given to us as parents and given to us as a church. That God, that you have brought so many families here. There's so many young kids running up and down the halls of this building all week long. Lord, we need much grace to shepherd well these multitude of precious young people that you have brought into Gateway. Because Lord, we don't have the human wisdom to do it. We'll fall flat on our face if we try. But God, you give more grace. And so we ask this day for grace upon grace upon grace for every family at Gateway. That God, where the enemy is trying to create division between parents and children or between husband and wife, that God, you would just breathe your grace into that. And the lies of the enemy would be silenced and the fleshly desires would be silenced. And God, that you would let your peace reign in every home. We pray for much grace for the children of Gateway to learn what it means to obey and to honor their parents. And God, we pray for much grace for every mom and dad who's here today. God, that they would, think they would find how to walk worthy of their incredible calling through the power of the gospel. Lord, I pray that this day that we would all come away with a sense of wonder that you looked upon broken sinners like us. Because every single one of us was a child who was born as a sinner. And yet you looked upon us and didn't pour your judgment on us. You gave us mercy. You gave us grace. Through what Christ did, what we just celebrated last weekend. God, give us grace to not lose sight of that gospel message that we celebrated last weekend at Easter. I pray it be ever before us that we would see your goodness and your kindness work all around us and it would cause our hearts to long to know you more. And that be contagious to all we're around, whether or not we're married and have kids or be contagious at school or at work. That God, that our longings for you because of what you've done for us be contagious to all around us. That others around us might see the glories of the gospel this day. And we'll give you the praise for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning?